You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Today's podcast has a special guest, Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, whose best-selling book, Heart of Fire, tells the story of her upbringing to become the Senate's only serving immigrant today. But she's been doing a lot more on Capitol Hill than telling her story. She sponsored and got past the first ever federal legislation prohibiting hate crimes against people of Asian Americans and Pacific Islander descent. However, the senator's personal story is central to understanding how she grew into an outspoken defender of America's democracy from humble beginnings in a barn in Japan's countryside, which her Hawaiian-born mother left behind to come to the then U.S. territory only a few years after the end of World War II. And Senator Hirono did speak out in our conversation when we asked about her reaction to the single solitary holdout vote against her bill to give legal protection to AAPI persons. She was very outspoken about the junior senator for Missouri's dubious vote. Our chat finished with an ominous warning that every Democrat needs to hear about Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's plans now that the Republicans have lost all three elected branches of government after four years under the 45th administration. We're so fortunate that Senator Maisie Hirono had the time to help share what is really going on inside our nation's capital with us and to tell us about her captivating book. Take a listen. I'm here with Senator Hirono from the great state of Hawaii, who's here to tell us about her new book, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Aloha, Senator. Thanks for joining me. Aloha. <laughs> it's nice to talk to you. But before we get to your book, there's been a obvious dangerous rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans as of late, especially. Um, what do you think is the source of that hate? And how in the world did you convince the Senate to take action this week, passing <laughs> your landmark hate crimes bill with a 94 to 1 vote? I mean, that's amazing. During the pandemic, we saw a rise in unprovoked uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And people have seen on TV uh, these kinds of attacks. And so we know that it is happening all across the country. And so I had introduced a bill uh, along with Grace Meng of New York, uh, create a much more of a database for the hate crimes and uh, enable us to determine what else we needed to do. So Chuck Schumer put this uh, on a uh, fast track because a lot of these hate crimes are occurring in New York, if you notice, New York City. So he decided that we should push this. Um, and I really owe a lot to Chuck's uh, uh, steadfastness in pushing this through because it is, for one thing, so important for the AAPI community to be recognized. Most of the time, these crimes are very underreported and for uh, uh, the history of the immigrants, Asian immigrants, we have been seen as the other, as the perpetual foreigners, and uh, the racism against AAPIs emerges during periods of uh, of our country's history. I, I don't understand why Holly voted against it. Do you know why? <laughs> well, I think he, he gave a, a pretty lame uh, rationale, but... Uh, What's very clear to the AAPI community is at a time when they feel under siege, uh, he did not stand with them to condemn these crimes. And and he said the bill went too far or something, whereas earlier as the debate was going on, I 
had heard that a number of the Republicans said this is this bill doesn't go far enough. So as far as I'm concerned, he just came up with a lame excuse to uh, to vote against this bill. Understood. Well, let's move on to your book. It's titled Heart of Fire. Where'd you come up with that title and what's the significance of it? The Heart of Fire very much describes my mother, who was a courageous risk taker who um, changed my life by bringing me to this country. She uh, escaped a, an abusive marriage to my father, who I never uh, knew, and brought us here so that we could have a chance at a better life. And hers was, uh, you know, ours, I should say, was a uh, early years of struggle in this country. And so she really had a heart of fire that kept her going with a tremendous determination. And you explain how your mom was, was an inspiration to you in the book. Can you tell our listeners about what your mom instilled in you and how it led you to a life of public service? I'd say that one of the characteristics of my mother, aside from the determination I mentioned, is perseverance. When we first came here, we had nothing. I certainly couldn't speak any English, and so we just had to sink or swim. There were no such things as ESL or English language uh, learning classes or anything like that. And my mom had to work two jobs with no benefits. Growing up, I knew what it felt like um, as a child to be so afraid that mom would get sick and she wouldn't be able to go to work. No work, no pay, uh, no food, literally. And even when she was working, a very low-paying job, um, that we would end, uh, we would run out of money by the end of the month. So we lived very simply in a one-room boarding house in the beginning. So what she instilled in me was great determination, fortitude. Um, don't you don't sit around complaining. You just got on with it. Well, I've seen that uh, firsthand from you for the, especially the last few years um, with the former guy in the White House. Uh, but the the House just passed a, a landmark bill, obviously to make D.C. the 51st state. Can you yes. tell me how transformative it is, uh, in your opinion, for a territory to achieve statehood? Well, certainly Hawaii became a state in 1959 was the same year that I got naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And so along with statehood comes uh, a, a lot of resources from the national government. Um, you get to vote for the president. It's, it's a whole array of things. Uh, yes, you get to pay federal taxes, but frankly, the D.C. people are already paying more than their per capita share of taxes into the federal government. And then in terms of population, they, they have more population than a couple of states. I think it was Vermont and um, uh, another state. So this is truly a case of of taxation without representation. I'm really glad that the House passed the bill. I think that it's going to be a challenge to get the bill out of the Senate unless we change the filibuster what is, requirement for 60 votes. What is the big deal with the filibuster to someone who who doesn't understand it? Why do some senators <laughs> cling to it? What What should we do about it? What can we do about it? And there is an argument that the filibuster protects the party that's not in power, but note that the Democrats were not in power for four years, and we didn't have very many opportunities to exercise the filibuster. Why? Because Mitch McConnell refused to bring bills to the floor for a vote where the Democrats could withhold our 10 votes or however many votes to give him 60 votes. So he was very busy putting people, you know, judges. His goal was to confirm as many very conservative, uh, ideologically driven judges onto our courts for lifetime appointments. 
And then, of course, his biggest achievement, if you can call it that, was the $1.5 trillion in tax cuts for the richest 1% of people and corporations in our country. This is the reason Mitch wants the Democrats to retain the filibuster, because he knows that the Democrats are going to put forth bills that will help people. And so he wants to have the ability to veto every single one of these by denying us the 60 votes. So as far as I'm concerned, in order for us to get things done, note that in the rescue plan, not a single Republican voted for it, even though it would help millions of people in our country, they refused to vote for it. And so uh, I think they're going to continue to be very obstructionist on major bills that the Democrats, I certainly do, have a sense of urgency to enact on behalf of the people of our country. Why Why are Republicans kind of refusing? Uh, I guess it's like a false negotiating tactic where they, where they act like they're going to sit down with you and talk to talk about a bill, but that's not reality. They're not actually good faith negotiations. What's the deal with that? The, the, the deal with that is they don't want us to uh, go forward with these bills. They want to delay. Uh, and we know this already because for the Affordable Care Act, I think we negotiated with them uh, for a year and at the end of which they didn't vote for it. And they proceeded when they were empowered to try and repeal the bill dozens of times. So we do learn from past behavior. And if they sincerely want to come forward and work with us, uh, then things will move. But otherwise, excuse me, otherwise, uh, these kinds of delay tactics uh, will be seen for what it is, uh, that they have no intention of working with us in that major legislation to help people. Right. And how, how, as an activist, how can I help out, um, you know, legislation in the Senate? Let's say, you know, the D.C. statehood bill comes to the Senate. How can I help out to make sure that it passes or it gets a vote? Obviously, it will get a vote. But like, how, 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 how can we support that as much as possible? I think that there are so many groups that are, are have already come forward. The thing is that D.C. has a wonderful delegate and Eleanor Holmes Norton. Uh, but, uh, you know, they actually need senators. They need uh, people who can make those decisions. So in terms of helping, uh, one way is to elect uh, people in, to the Senate who will support D.C. statehood. And, and that means that we need to pay attention to what is going on in, in all these races across the country for, for federal races. That's one way. Find the candidates who will support D.C. statehood and send resources to them. And what are some things that you're maybe excited about having a new administration in charge? What do you, what do you think we can accomplish with President Biden? Well, one of the big things is we now have a president who takes responsibility for getting this pandemic under control, unlike the previous person. And uh, so the the vaccinations are a huge part of enabling our country to reopen, uh, to reopen our schools safely and all of that. And so he's done that, taking taking responsibility for a national uh, process to get this pandemic under control. Then he wants to get our economy going and he wants to help the people who have been badly hurt by this pandemic, hence the rescue plan bill, which we pushed through, had to do it using reconciliation because the Republicans made it clear that they had no intention of working with us. The next step is the huge infrastructure bill, Build Back Better bill that would create jobs with with long-term benefits and take us to a, a, 
a green uh, economy, green approach to uh, energy usage. So all of the things that he talked about, he's putting into place, not to mention that he denounced these uh, attacks on Asian Americans, whereas the previous person used incendiary language, such as calling this the China virus and his administration calling it the Kung Flu, creating an, an atmosphere where uh, the kind of uh, anti-Asian hatred could uh, come forward. Right. So for in so many reasons, we now have a president who cares, who empathizes, who listens to people, who uh, uses facts right. to make decisions. There's there's lots of folks who wonder if the previous person and his accomplices will ever face accountability. We see these reports like Hatch Act violations or Pompeo or, you know, uh, does anything happen? Are there criminal referrals that could happen or, you know, are we kind of moving on from here? Well, I think that uh, Georgia, for example, Georgia Attorney General, that that she is probably, she has um, opened, I think, some kind of an investigation regarding his interference with their elections. You have the New York uh, District Attorney looking at his tax returns and other things. So uh, there are a number of these kinds of, uh, of investigations happening. Uh, to hold Trump accountable. Uh, This is a person who has led, in my view, the most corrupt administration that I can think of. (laughs) He thought Nixon was bad. He looks like like a piker compared to Trump and his enablers. Right. And now back to the book, Heart of Fire. It covers a lot of territory during the recently ended term of the past occupant of the White House. How did the 45th administration, as you refer to them, ultimately impact you personally as an elected official? Because I saw you immediately come out against him very vocally, and it it was very supportive of the American people. And we were kind of on a lonely island, so we really appreciate that. But what was it that, uh, how did it ultimately impact you personally as elected official? Um, Trump? Yes. He's a bully. And uh, he, uh, even during the campaign, it was unbelievable that our country could vote for this person because he was uh, divisive. He was, uh, he went after women. He was, uh, he was a horrible campaigner and he got worse as president. So I, uh, who had uh, not spent a lot of time talking with the national press and uh, uh, really engaging with them very much, uh, it came to the point where I just couldn't take it. <laughs> so uh, I began to be very much more vocal. It's something that from my culture and the background in Hawaii, uh, being vocal, aggressive, confrontational are not particularly re- rewarded in Hawaii, uh, especially coming from a woman. And so I, I was effective in doing my job in the state uh, state legislature and as lieutenant governor without um, having to be that way, but I can't stand bullies, and Trump was the biggest bully of them all. And once I began to speak out in 2017, I believe I was the first senator to call him a misogynist, a liar, uh, a minute sexual predator, and he should resign. And that I said that to what we refer to as a spray of, of reporters and uh, media people. I think you know what that is, having worked in the White House, I believe you said. And so these were people who were arrayed at the end of the hallway as I was going to a Judiciary Committee hearing. And at that point, Trump had just 
described my good friend Kirsten, Kirsten Gillibrand as coming to see him on her knees, practically begging him for help. And the innuendo was so horrible that I thought this guy needs to be stopped. And so as I was walking toward my hearing, I saw the spray and my uh, communications director said, you know what, if you want to say something, this is a really good time to do it. And I said, yeah, why not? So I stepped forward and I said those things. So I began to be a lot more vocal and I also understood how important it was for people in our country to to hear someone confront this president. I'm not the only one, but I, as a minority woman, I think I made an impression. And I also speak very plainly, as you well know. <laughs> I have been known to swear once in a while. But I've said that with all the horrible things that uh, Trump was doing, if you're not moved to swearing once in a while, you're not paying attention. Yeah, I, hell no. I remember that. I remember hell no. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us about what, what brought about that? Oh, that was a confirmation for uh, Amy Comey Barrett. And it wasn't as though I was shouting hell no from the rafters, but I, w I went up to the clerks and I said no. I, it was an exclamation point to my no vote. Right. But I have been a lot more vocal publicly when I said the men in this country, you should just shut up and step up and do the right thing. That I said into a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess second to last question, the, the insurrection, what are your thoughts on it? How did it come about and what can we do, do to prevent it from ever happening again? Trump had been setting the stage for challenging the election results. And he had said very clearly that if he doesn't win, it's because there's fraud in the elections. And he, he just set the stage before the elections and then during the elections, uh, he kept um, kept up with what what I call, everyone calls the big lie that this election was going to be stolen from him. And of course, when the results came, that he became even more vocal. He and his supporters had mounted so many lawsuits, dozens of lawsuits, most of which I think they, they were either kicked out of court or they withdrew these lawsuits. Uh, who can remember Rudy Giuliani going before the judge and not being able to articulate why they were even in court? So he proceeded with a big lie, convinced a lot of people in our country that the election had been stolen. And the aftermath of all that is that there are still a lot of, of state legislators who support Trump, who are in very Republican, well, it doesn't even matter because they've gerrymandered themselves probably, and they are proceeding to, uh, to suppress uh, people's votes, basically stealing people's votes. Some over 200 laws are being considered to make it much, much harder to vote. And the case in point is, of course, what the Georgia legislature did. And so it continues. The big lie, the uh, continuing efforts to steal people's votes by making it much, much harder to vote. And that is why we Democrats and others need to fight back. I can't thank you enough for what you've done because it felt like we were on an island forever. I remember when we started quote unquote, resisting in mid 2016. That's why I started my organization. And it just was uh, very overwhelming to see you speak the truth and actually not be afraid. And, and it was at, at a time where everybody was afraid. And so it means a lot to me. Thank you for all you've done. You served as an inspiration to oh, me and many others. Thank you. We'll keep on. And thank you for the, your resistance. 
And uh, as far as I'm concerned, with the Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, goal is to take back the Senate. So there's a sense of urgency to get things done in the time that we have, which is pretty short. Right. <laughs> so uh, let's just keep going. You know, I just uh, I often end a lot of my emails and correspondence with saying uh, we shall persevere onward. That is how I end my episodes is the word onward. No joke. Um, I, I appreciate <laughs> right. that. The book is Heart of Fire, an Immigrant Daughter's Story. Link will be in the episode's notes. Buy the book. Um, thank you, Senator Haron. I appreciate you and everything you do. Thank you so much, Scott. Everyone, take care. Be kind. Thanks again to Senator Hirono for taking the time. Please go buy her book right now. It's definitely worth the read. Thanks again to our producer, the best producer in podcasting, Mr. Grant Stern. You can follow him at Grant Stern. Make sure to also subscribe to his Substack. You can subscribe to our podcast at DworkinReport.com. Check out more episodes. Thanks again for listening. Resistance forever. Forever.